All right, welcome to the show. This upload's coming to you May 17th, 2017. And you're listening to the Post Money Plan podcast at thepostmoneyplan.com, where we believe in empowerment through knowledge. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about the cost of home ownership and some of the costs that you might not think of when you're first buying a home and just some of the implications there over time. So I have Larry on the show with me who has owned many homes over time and built some of his own and has experience in home ownership. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thank you. I hope everything is helpful to those out there in the audience and they can benefit from it in the future, I hope, and save them some time, effort, and money. Okay, let's just try to go through it, if we can, in in some kind of progressive fashion. So in the very beginning, what are the first kind of costs? When you're buying the home, you have to pay a down payment, but that's not really a cost. That's money you're putting towards the house. But then there's transaction costs, right? Yeah, there's a lot of what I would call hidden costs associated with home ownership. The advantage is obviously you've got something of your own, and typically over the long haul, it increases in value. But in the short run, there's a lot of cost associated with the purchase of a home. First, you typically need to have a survey of the property done if it's not within the last six months. So that typically means that you need to have a survey done, which will cost you anywhere from three to seven, eight hundred dollars. Now, is that the buyer or the seller who's usually paying for that? Typically is the buyer. The seller also, if he's doing a listing, may need to do that. But I'm thinking from the buyer's side today mostly. So then you're typically working through a real estate agent. You can sometimes buy direct from a person, but that's not all that common. Typically, there's a third party involved. The realtor is working no matter what they say for the realtor's benefit. They're not working for you so much as they're working for themselves. The larger the selling price, the more money the realtor makes. They make a percentage on the the sale price. Then you typically would need to do a inspection of the property, whether it's plumbing, electrical, overall, general. Anyway, there's a whole series of inspections that may be required or you may want to have done even if they're not required just to protect yourself against hidden damage. And those fees for those are typically on the order of $500 per type of inspection. Again, those may or may not be required depending upon your financial situation. If you, for example, are providing a minimal down payment where you have what's called PMI, a bank. And what is PMI? It's basically coverage for the down payment that a person would normally make. A standard historical down payment is about 20% of the purchase price. So if the bank is loaning you money and you're doing anything less than 20%, they will require this PMI to protect themselves. Property mortgage insurance? Yes, to protect themselves against loss. It really is a requirement that the bank places on you to allow you to borrow money from them, it protects the bank again, not you as the buyer. But I guess indirectly it protects you in that by meeting the bank's requirements of having the inspections, then you're somewhat assured by a professional that there's no hidden electrical, plumbing, whatever issues associated with your property. 
then when you actually have negotiated a price that's acceptable to the buyer and acceptable to the seller, you go into do the closing and there are a whole litany of surprise costs or hidden costs that are out there. For example, in the state that I live, the state of Pennsylvania charges a 1% fee to the buyer and the seller that you must pay at closing, what's called the closing cost. Other things include recording fees at the courthouse. And today, maybe buyers are more well-informed. But when I went to purchase a house the first time, I was really surprised by the percentage of my total cost that was involved in closing costs. Do you happen to remember approximately how much that was? Uh, I'm going to say it was about 20% of my purchase price. Admittedly, I was buying a lower price home at the time, and there are certain minimal costs involved. Depending upon where you are in this state, you can typically close with a lawyer. In some states, you have a closing company that's involved, and again, they take a fee. And that could be anywhere from $500 to $1,000 added on to your cost that you may or may not have planned for. 20% of the purchase price. What year are we talking now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm talking back 1975, so it's in the dawn of time. <laughs> okay, fine. That's not really comparable to today because home prices have gone up a lot more probably relative to those transaction costs. Yes, yes. For example, you know, back when I bought that, $500 was probably something on the order of 3% all by itself. Today's market, $500 on a typical house is a much lower percentage. Let's just cover this again for the sake of clarity in terms of down payment. So the amount of down payment that's required by a bank or lending company will fluctuate over time depending on the credit cycle and how well the economy is doing. Right. So it usually starts at 20% is kind of like the, the baseline and can go down from there. It can go down or up depending upon the condition of money, basically the overall situation with money. For example, when there's been a big financial scare, which occurred about 10 years ago, when people were getting either no down payment or extremely low down payment, all of a sudden banks began requiring 20, 30, 40% down, even if they would make the loan, which for a period of time, it was really hard to get a loan at all. Again, situation is slightly different if you're in a fortunate circumstance where you don't have to borrow money, but that's not true of the normal average person, particularly someone that's interested in their first home purchase. Typically, you're trying to scrape and claw to get enough money for down payment and closing cost coverage. So that's why those issues are important and significant for you. Then another issue related to PMI, it is typical that you would be required by the bank or lending agency to have homeowner's insurance. And the homeowner's insurance can be a reasonably healthy chunk of money. It could be as low as, say, $500.00. It might more typically be approaching $1,000. At any rate, it's significant enough that it's something to be considered. Now, are you getting some value back for that? Well, I guess it depends on how you look at insurance. As a protection against a catastrophic loss, which you simply couldn't recover from financially, then you are getting a return. 
it doesn't really make sense to have your valuable asset like your house unprotected without insurance. You can do it if you are putting enough down and are not required by your lending agency to do it, but that might be sort of fool's gold. It is probably worthwhile to get insurance even if you're not required. Okay, so far we have inspection, realtor fees along the way, closing costs, whatever all might be involved in your closing costs. And then you have your down payment, which could be anywhere from zero to 20% of the total cost of the home that you have to put up front. So these are all upfront costs. And then once you make the purchase, well, then you get the mortgage, right? Which is principal and interest. Yes. And just like you would think, the norm is for people to be just barely able to provide a, a minimal down payment and try to get by, which means, therefore, that their loan or their monthly payment for their mortgage is significantly higher than they might like it. Mortgage rates are historically low now compared to most times in American history, but still there's a huge potential savings out there in the long-run cost of a house if you can either borrow less or pay it back early. It is pretty typical of lending agencies to charge a lower interest rate if your borrowing term is shorter. So if you get a traditional 30-year mortgage, you might pay a higher interest rate than if you took the 15-year option. And typically that is a tough thing for people to do at the beginning of their career but as time goes on and you get some raises and inflation impacts involved, typically you can increase the amount that you pay back. Again, this is sort of old school, but historically banks or lending agencies wanted their payments spread over a specific time so that they were getting a reliable source of income and they didn't want you to pay back early and they would charge you a penalty for paying back early. That's something that you can avoid just by a simple question to your lender at the front. You know, what if I pay back early? Is there a prepayment penalty? If the answer is no, then go ahead. If the answer is yes, look for another lending agency. I think it's worth noting that just having a lower monthly mortgage payment doesn't mean you're paying less in the long run. Like you said, if you have a shorter term mortgage, a 15 year instead of a 30 year, the monthly payments are going to be higher because you're paying back the total amount faster. So if you borrow $100,000 for your house and you're paying it back in a 15-year term instead of a 30-year term, the number you're paying each month is going to be higher, but you'll end up paying less interest. So it's better for you over the long run, but you have to be able to afford to be able to make that payment. Yeah. If you can afford to do it, then it's something you should seriously consider because over the life of a traditional loan, you're talking about saving on the order of $100,000 of interest on a traditional loan over the life of the loan when you bump it up to a 15-year payout versus a 30-year payout, for example. And anybody knows that that's worth, worth saving if you can. Okay, so now we've got all the transaction costs and the mortgage. What about after that? 
Well, okay, before we get to that, there's one more significant thing that I left out. You'll also have property taxes. Now, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from, calls them slightly differently. They call it a school tax and some other things, but it is generically referred to as property tax. The taxes are typically involved at closing. There's a settlement date, and that date decides how much the previous owner must pay on the taxes. And then on that settlement date, that starts your taxes. And those typically are not paid in arrears. They're typically paid in advance. So that's typically done at closing as part of it. Then as you move forward, those taxes, if you're borrowing through a lending agency, they will typically add those to the cost of your monthly payment in advance to accumulate in escrow for a payment that will be made on your behalf once or twice a year at the appropriate tax time. And the rate, uh, how much you pay in property taxes, that can vary a lot based on what state you're in and what county you're in. and Even municipality. In my state, we have townships. My township mill rate, which is what they call the tax rate, is different than the surrounding townships. Each one has a, a difference, and it might go up one year in one township, and the next township might not change theirs. But it's significant enough that it's important to consider that when you look toward closing costs. And again, that's something that's one of the things that your realtor can be expected to do for you is provide you with an approximation of what all the pieces of your closing costs will amount to so that you won't be caught by surprise when you go to close on your house. The price range on property tax could be anywhere from one to what? <clears throat> well, I'd say, let me think out, out loud here for just a second. In percentage terms. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to convert my dollar amount to percentage. I'm going to say that it might be on the order of 5 to 7%. It could be that high. It depends on the house that you're buying. Typically, the older the house itself is, the taxes are lower than a newer property. That's all tied into tax codes, but it's just something that you can utilize to your benefit to know that. So if you're buying a property that's 30 years old, your property taxes are typically going to be significantly lower than a brand new house. So we're saying anywhere from 1% to maybe up as high as 7% if you're in a very high tax area? Yeah, and that's the property tax portion again. Okay, there are some other small details I've left out. There's some little bitty fees, 5 and $10 things that get added in, but those aren't enough to really spend our time on here. Moving forward, whether you've got a, a newer house or an older house, there are repair costs associated with it. Now, it's typical when you buy a new house for the first year, the builder will take care of any repairs or maintenance that are done. It's just a headache for you in terms of some crack in the floor or whatever. But, you, but you're talking a brand new house, right? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you're buying a house on the secondary market, that is an existing house, it's not normal for that kind of coverage to occur. Basically, once you take over ownership of the house, you're responsible for any repairs associated with that house. So that involves any appliances, 
anything in your yard. If a tree from the neighbor's yard falls on your yard and damages something on your yard, some of the cost might be associated with the neighbor, but you can bet that it's still going to cost you some money, even if it was somebody else's tree. And then, of course, you know, if you live in an area where there's a homeowner's association, then they typically have a homeowner's fee, which takes care of a group area or a common area. And that, although not large, is an additional cost that you must bear each and every month. So in terms of repairs, you might have a bunch when you first move in, but then as an ongoing cost, would you say maybe like 1% of the property value is a fair ongoing estimate? I I would say that uh, 1% should provide you with a little bit of a cushion. Most years, you know, you're going to have a refrigerator go out or a washer dryer go out or, or something like that. So those are significant hits to your cost. You don't like paying $500 or $1,000 for an item. But when compared to a house, I think that that 1% kind of covers that type of thing. So I, I think that's a good ballpark number to budget. And then depending on how much you want to change the property, there's remodeling too, right? Oh, yeah. And of course, that is on the the owner. But, you know, as your life changes, as you have children or children move away or you begin to take care of parents, that might either just from a desire standpoint or an actual physical necessity might require remodeling of the home or, or adding a kitchen or adding a bathroom or adding a bedroom. All of that is something that needs to be addressed later on. And I'll go ahead, since we're on this subject, in terms of resale value, you know, let's say you own the house and you want to remodel and you put in a significant remodel. So let's say you put in a $100,000 remodel. It's not normal for you to, in the year that you put in the remodel, to be able to get a 100% return on a resale for what you put in a remodel. It's pretty well accepted norm that on bedrooms and bathrooms, well, bedrooms, excuse me, bedrooms, you're typically looking at about 20 cents on the dollar. So if you put $100,000 worth of bedrooms in, you're going to get $20,000 increase in your sales price of your house. On the other hand, if you put in a kitchen, it's fairly normal for 100% of the remodel on the kitchen to be able to be passed along as additional value that you've added to the house. Bathrooms are somewhere in between. And again, other items like garages or other items that are niceties typically don't add much, if any, to your resale value. There's also the potential of having to do pest control and things like that, right? Yes, particularly if you live near a wooded area, but even if you don't, it is pretty normal to require some regular, when I say regular, some kind of annual, semi-annual pest control from an outside agency or uh, some special effort on your own part to keep bugs away. Okay, so we mentioned pest control. What about in terms of beautification, like upkeep for the house, the yard, and furniture and whatnot? Yeah, there are an infinite variety of potential expenses there. It all depends on 
your personal taste and uh, availability to work, how much of it you will do yourself, how much you will hire out. You will not get by without spending some cost on your yard, whether it's a brickyard or a grass yard or a luxurious landscape yard. There will be some cost involved on an ongoing basis to maintain and uh, keep it livable. And if you ever decide you want to sell it, to make it more saleable. What are the more expensive things you might have in your yard? Um, for example, if you add trees, if they're significant size, like I added a 18-foot tree, that cost me $1,000. If you add a 24-foot tree, the cost goes up almost exponentially to $3,000. If you add a significant plant, like a burning bush, for example, if you have a landscape group do it for you, you can typically expect to pay $200 per bush for that. Now, if you go down to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy them and install them yourself, you can save significantly on that. But that involves your time, effort, and labor to do it. Everything associated with a house, you can do yourself if you're willing to put what they call sweat equity into it. So if you're willing to work and live with a less than perfect house in the interim while you're working to make it better, you can save significant front-end money on the purchase of items or the cost to have someone else do it for you. But you have to be aware that there will be a time lag there because of your availability. Maybe you have a full-time job and to do this you have to do it on nights and weekends. So it will simply take you longer and you have to be satisfied to live with the construction phase. If you put in a full sodded yard, you can typically expect something on the order of $10,000 for 10,000 square feet of yard. So depending upon how much grass you're talking. If you're patient enough to grow your own grass, you can go buy a 50-pound bag of grass for, I don't know, 50 bucks or maybe less. But you don't have a immediate lawn that way. It all depends on your flexibility and your willingness to put forth effort to make it satisfactory. If you put in a sprinkler system, you can add maybe $1,000 in materials if you do it yourself. If you have it done, you can expect that to cost you upwards of $5,000. And the last thing that I would think of that we haven't covered yet is furniture. You don't want just an empty house. Oh, yeah. That's one of the um, things that's surprising is how much value there is in even what I would call marginal furniture. You know, you can go to a secondhand store and buy odds and ends quite cheaply. But if you are buying new furniture, you're talking significant money for each and every piece. A normal chair will run you 500 to $1,500. A sofa can run you 500 to $2,500. A table, a dining room table, you can spend as little as 200 or you can spend upwards of $10,000, depending upon how fancy you go. But all of those add up. Each bed, when I talk bed, I'm talking the mattresses, the box springs, the frame, the bedding materials, all that together, you can typically expect to spend 
anywhere from a thousand to five thousand dollars, depending upon whether you go with a traditional bed or a memory foam or some other high-end bed. So all of those add up, particularly if you have a family with multiple children. You're talking multiple rooms, multiple beds, multiple desks. You can expect to pay about a quarter of your purchase price for your house on furnishings to fill the house, sort of a normal range basis. Then that you'll find also by checking the value that you typically have for a homeowner's policy on your house with your insurance company. They will top that off with about 25% for your furnishings on a normal basis. If you live in your house long enough, you're going to have roof repairs, furnace repairs, those kinds of things. I didn't talk about those yet. Those are big items. Those are going to take place in an older home, right? In an older home, or if you happen to live in your home for a long period of time. But those can be quite expensive. Yes. If you do the roofing yourself, you can pay about a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars in material costs, but you'll pay another eight thousand in labor. So you're going to talk on the order of ten thousand dollars for a replacement roof. If you have a replacement furnace, you're probably talking $5,000, whether it be oil, gas, electric, whatever. It's something on that order of magnitude by the time you get it all said and done. If, for example, your water heater goes out, you can expect to spend $800 to $1,000 on your water heater. Now, you can go down to Lowe's and buy it for four or 500 but they'll charge you four or 500 to install it. So the actual cost is $1,000 for a water heater. Okay, I think that pretty much covers things. Hopefully this covers the major things that you would be encountering when buying a home so that you're aware of things up front and know what to plan for and things don't catch you by surprise and then you're stuck with bills that you weren't accounting for. I had just an additional thought on the back end. A house can be a saving or retirement vehicle for people. If you live in a high-growth area, for example, and you live in a house for a significant amount of time, 20 or 30 years, when you go to retire, you're looking for additional funds. One of those potential hidden banks of funds for you is the value in the house itself. If you're in a growth area, maybe your house cost you when you bought it $100,000. But in 30 years with just standard inflation, that might increase the value of the property to something on the order of $300,000. And if you're in a high growth area, instead of that being $300,000, that house might sell on the new market for three quarters of a million dollars. It's hugely affected by the location of your property, but those can be hidden source of retirement income if you're looking to uh, make ends meet in retirement. Yeah, and there's also the option of downsizing if you were in a certain home through your career with your kids, and then in retirement, once you have an empty nest, you don't need as much space, you could downsize to a smaller house, or there's the reverse mortgage option where instead of making mortgage payments that you're kind of getting paid mortgage payments and you're selling equity in your house over time. Correct. 
which would give you some cash in the meantime. Anyway, thanks again for coming on the show. I hope that uh, I have added something that will be of value to someone and uh, maybe save them some headaches and, and frustrations in feeling comfortable about buying their house and or what to be expect once they make that mental step from rental to buying. All right. So catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. 